0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. We're, pro, we're not going to be talking about Father's Day per se, but we're not going to talk about family and family relationships and that, that whole dynamic. And uh, We're doing this, of course, to understand as much about Jesus as we can. Uh, in chapter 5, we talked about the overwhelming compassion of our Lord, and it, w- it was on the, the dynamic, if you will, of fatherhood and children. We had the the synagogue ruler who came to him, uh, risked everything, risked his job, risked his status in the community to call out to Jesus and, and kneel before him and ask for him to minister to his child, ask Jesus to go out of his way. Uh, to minister to him because it was his daughter that was suffering. And what a powerful force that is. And then, of course, the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, she had, because of cultural norms, been an outcast of society, uh, coming behind Jesus and touching the hem of his cloak that she might be healed. She risked a tremendous amount in doing that. Uh, By some account, she was even risking her life. Um, And yet when Jesus turned to her, he said, Daughter, do not be afraid. Daughter. Only person in the scriptures Jesus spoke to with an affinity, uh, the title like that, of daughter. So he extended that family connection. So we're still on the, on the theme of that family connection, but we're kind of kind of see the flip side of it a little bit today. I think you'll see that as we get to the text. So Mark chapter 6, reading from the New American Standard. And he went out from there. That of course is Jesus. He's talking about him leaving Capernaum. He went out from there and came into his own his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, of Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his own relatives in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going about the villages teaching. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that we gather today. We would hear from you, Lord. That's our real need, Father. Uh, we're a needy people. Your word tells us that, but our greatest need, we know, is to hear from you that our hearts, Father, might be healed, might be strengthened and nourished, to serve you. In Jesus' name, Amen. It's a really well-known passage of scripture. Um, we might say it's a sad passage of scripture, and yet there is there is an upside to it, and we'll we'll see that when we start talking about the character of Jesus. And what I would like to do in the, in this passage, as we look at it. Again, trying to find, see what we can of the character of Jesus is focus on three key words. There's three key words here, and they're very similar. They're, they're emotion-connected words. They relate to our reactions. And they're connected words, uh, and yet they're they're different. Verse 2, writing of the people's initial reaction to Jesus when he came into their synagogue and began teaching. Um, the word is ekpleroso. They were astonished. We'll talk about that word, to be astonished, right? And then in verse 3, as they've had some time to process what Jesus has said and done, um, this is a word that you probably recognize. The word is scandalizo. They were scandalized by him. They took offense at him, yeah. And then finally down in verse 6, we get Jesus' reaction. Jesus' reaction. Um, He marveled at them. Thavmazo, thavmazo. So three different words that talk about people's emotions and their reactions as we process through this text. Um, The people of Nazareth were astonished. Then they were offended. And Jesus marveled, right? So let's look at these three words and see what we can learn in in this passage and see what we can learn about Jesus. So Jesus returns to Nazareth. That's the first verse. He'd been in Capernaum about 40 miles away. That's where he spent most of his adult life. But Nazareth just... Up in the hills, back there, is where he grew up. And it doesn't state Nazareth, but it refers to his hometown. And because it refers to his extended family, or immediate and extended family, most scholars would put him back in Nazareth. Uh, and he goes into the synagogue and begins to teach. And the implication is he's teaching the same things, being he's doing the same things. And um, the crowd responds to what they see in the synagogue with... Astonishment, It's an old word. It goes all the way back to Homer. It's a well-established idea, and it means literally to strike something. To be struck by something. Now we use that expression, don't we? When an idea presents itself, or we see something, or we suddenly learn something, or we hear something, and it just it like grabs our attention and we're riveted on it. We say, "Well, it struck me that." Or I was struck by the idea. We use that expression, and that's what's happening here. It means for something to happen that absolutely grabs our attention in such a way that we just have to, one way or another, deal with it. It may just be processing it mentally. We may have to act on it. But it presents itself in the here and now, and we have to deal with that. And that's what happens. The question for the people of Nazareth... um, Again, you could say that what is happening in this moment is they're being forced to deal with what for has maybe a couple of years now been the elephant in the room, right, that nobody talked about. Jesus is that kid, you know, that grew up down the street, right, and um, all of a sudden now we're hearing all this stuff from Capernaum, and we're hearing stuff from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and we're hearing he's doing all this traveling, and he's preaching all this stuff, and people are getting healed, and all kinds of wild and crazy stuff is happening, and what does this mean? You know, Nazareth is a real small town, right? No secrets. So people talk. But as long as he's out there and not here, we don't have to draw any conclusions. We can just, you know, keep thinking about it, talk about it or not talk about it. Discuss it or not. But we don't have to draw any conclusions. But all of a sudden, now Jesus is right in their midst. And he's saying things they can't believe. They're amazing. The wisdom, and that word wisdom would refer to his interpretation of the scriptures. Him him answering questions they had long been perplexed by. And even doing miracles. And I think it's significant that they say of Jesus, it says, performed these miracles. These things. Wonders in their sight. That word these is extremely important because it's indistinct to those. You know, those are the miracles he did over there. Or the miracles he did over there. But these are the miracles he's doing right here. So they come to a place where they have to make a decision about who Jesus is. They can no longer wonder. They can no longer debate about it. The undeniable reality of who Jesus is, or at least who he's claiming to be, is right there in front of them, and it's time for a decision to be made. Well, in verse 3, they they make their decision, and their astonishment turns to deliberate disbelief. Deliberate disbelief. They make a choice. Years ago, uh, I heard a really smart person say, um... The difference between doubt and disbelief is this. Doubt is the natural human response to a message of faith. When something that is said to us, that that appeals to our faith, or is based upon faith, or is only understood by faith, we are presented with a choice. Because a natural human inclination, when we read the things about our Lord, is to doubt, even if, even if our faith is strong, there's still that question. And what, what faith truly is, or what belief truly is, isn't not having doubt. It's choosing to act on faith, not on doubt. Even Jesus in Matthew 21, 21, he said, if you have faith and do not doubt. He didn't say if you don't have any doubt. If you have a measure of faith and you choose to act on it, it takes a choice. Faith always presents us with a choice. And they had a choice. Jesus had made it clear who he was. His actions made it clear. He, he is the Messiah. And they have to choose. But they aren't prepared to make that choice. After all, this is the carpenter, the tecton. And that just meant, it's where, where our word technique comes from. It just meant somebody to work with his hands. He could have been a stonemason. He could have been a, worked with wood. Anything or all. He's, he's a working man. This is just a working man. He's not some scholarly rabbi or saint. He's the son of Mary, and I don't think it takes too much to figure out where that was going. In the Middle East, when you introduce a man, you always introduce him as the son of his father. Again, many of you know I had the opportunity to to stand in a Greek court on trial, and that's how I was introduced. Are you, John? Son of Nicholas. That's the way you introduce people. That's across the board of the Middle East. Been that way for thousands of years. So why is Jesus introduced as the son of Mary? They knew who Joseph was. That is exactly why they introduced him as Mary. It's a reminder of the circumstances of his birth. Those questions that were asked. This is just the son of Mary. Aren't, aren't his brothers and sisters with us? And, of course, that's a whole other question that has, you know, troubled Christianity or divided Christianity over there. Exactly who are these brothers and sisters? Are they like, are they like the children of Mary and Joseph or just, you know, Joseph's from a previous marriage? Or are they cousins who lived in the same house? All these ideas. Actually, it doesn't matter because it doesn't say a thing about who Jesus is. But there were, there were people that grew up in the same house with him, and there's a list of them here. Don't we know his family? He's a working man of questionable origins, and we have his family right here. Who is he to claim the things he's claiming? And they were scandalized by him. scandalized that's a word we've talked about before. Um, Micah, I was going to warn you before you came in that I was going to put you on the spot, but you didn't get here early enough. Do you remember this one? Okay, that's right. Um, and I also, Ben, this is a word for you two guys. Scandalizo, Not that you scandalize us in any sense of the word, but those guys are both trappers. Now you remember? Trappers. The scandalon on the trap is that one little piece, you know, like in a mouse trap, which is where most of us are at, not like where those guys are at. Mousetrap, you bend the bail over, and you hold it over, your heart rate goes up. You put the little wire down, and then you put the flat piece that has the bait, Peanut butter, best stuff. You put the flat piece with the bait there, and when the mouse or the shrew touches the flat piece, that's when the lights go out. Right? That flat piece. And every trap, has, every, every kind of trap that any trapper uses has something in it. See, there's two elements to a trap. There's the tension, right? And then there's the thing that holds it. There's the tension, that's one element. I guess the third element is that implement of death. There's the tension, the implement of death, and then there's the little piece that holds everything static until something touches it, right? That thing that holds everything static until something touches it, that's the scandalon. That's what scandalize means. When something happens, something is said, Something is done. There's been this underlying tension, and it's like, that's it. You're done, right? So there's been all this underlying tension about who Jesus is and the stuff we're hearing from, you know, Capernaum and everywhere else, and there's an underlying tension in Nazareth. And when Jesus has the audacity to come into their synagogue and say the things he's saying and start doing miracles, what happens? whoa That's it. The rejection of him is absolute. They were scandalized by him. How dare he say such things? It's complete rejection. Right? Is this the carpenter's son? So, um, again, in my I don't know about in my mind, I create scenarios, right? We have Jesus in his hometown, Nazareth. Population maybe a couple hundred people, maybe maybe two thousand. It's a village. No secrets. People have been talking. He comes into the synagogue, he sits down, and he says some things, and they don't know what to do with it. It's a local boy who's headed big. It's the Messiah. Doesn't get much bigger than that. Or is he a local boy that didn't know his place? Reached too high. Maybe got a little too full of himself. Tragically, the people of Nazareth opt for the second option. The facts are undeniable what Jesus is doing and saying, but it doesn't fit their image of what the poor kid from the village is supposed to be doing. That, coupled with his sketchy background, make it unacceptable. See, the problem isn't that they don't know Jesus or that they do know Jesus. It's that they don't but think they do. And that's a dangerous place to be in, to think that you know Jesus when you don't. You know, I've noticed... um, In the Christian community, there are a couple of different ways in our relationship with the Lord we can kind of slip. I know a lot of people, they have an understanding of God that they're just like, just fearful. It's just fear. God is just the big guy that's waiting for them to mistake so he can slap them, ruin them, hurt them. And that's, that's wrong. That's not who he is. That's not who he is. He is a loving God. He is compassionate. We established that last week. But there are also those, and you hear them sometimes, who have a mentality of who our Lord is that is so familiar that you often wonder, are we remembering that he is God himself and he is absolutely holy? Knowing God is having both of those concepts in balance, his holiness and his compassion, his goodness and his power and authority. Jesus' character is in the balance for the people of Nazareth. You know, a lot of the uh, scholars, when they talk about this scene, they, they, they use the phrase, we all know it well, that familiarity breeds contempt. I read that, and I wondered, where's that phrase come from? Who first put that together? Uh, in English, it goes back to the 16th century. Uh, in French, it goes back to the 14th century, suggesting the French were ahead of the English, but we won't go there. Um, Actually, most scholars trace it back to, of all places, Aesop's fables. So if you're a fan of Aesop's fables, you know you go back to about the 6th century, the one about the lion and the the, uh, fox. The point being just this. This is an understanding, this idea, that familiarity breeds contempt, the lack of respect, has been observed by humanity for a very long time. It's part of who we are. When we are familiar, we tend to lose respect. The problem in Nazareth was... Too familiar. They lost the respect for one that they should have recognized was their Savior. So let's talk about Jesus' response. Verse 4, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own. And notice the progression that Jesus uses in verse 4. In his hometown. So he's looking at everybody, right? In the synagogue, hometown. Right? Right? Among his own relatives. So he's looking at his cousins, right? His own household. Now, who's he looking at? His brothers, sisters, those that knew him best, right? Verse 5 is the result that says Jesus could do no miracle there except to lay his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them. A couple different things there. One, the cost of unbelief is high. The cost of unbelief is high. It wasn't as though the people of Nazareth said, yeah, well, we're not buying this Jesus stuff. Hit the road, and there was no downside to it. No, we know that. We know that from other instances, Jesus talked about the consequence of rejecting him. The really, the really great part about this statement is even in the face of doubt and rejection, Jesus still ministered. I mean, I read that, you know, Jesus only healed a few people and go, well, that's not that great. If it was if you're one of the few people. You know, if you're the one person that was sick and Jesus, you said, Jesus, heal me, and great, oh, boom. That's fantastic. Now, we have to ask, why them? I would simply suggest, evidently, there was still some faith alive in that town, and people prepared to act on it. All right? Verse 6, he wondered at their unbelief. So, the first word meant astonished. That was the people's initial response. The second word meant offended or scandalized. This third word tells us a lot about Jesus, Again, it's what we talked about before. It's the word thavmazo. It means to see something incredible. To to see something, it's related to the idea of sight, but it's not the capacity to see, it's what we see. When we see something, that just goes, bam, and causes us to stop and think and process, right? Again, it's related to the, the concept of sight. That's where we get our word theater from, actually. Our word theater is rooted in this. Um... When I think about this word, Thavmazo, based on what I see, I know many of you had the opportunity to be at the Grand Canyon, and you probably remember that moment when you first walked up to the edge, and you went, whoa, I knew it was big, but I didn't know it was this big. And you're just kind of held there, almost in a place of of unbelief. And what I've found is really funny, because I've been there a few times, is to stand there at the edge and wait, and you'll actually hear people say that. Like, whoa, I knew it was big, I didn't know it was this big, Right? when that visual thing hits you so much that you have to stop to process it. It takes some time. So as I put all this together, again, this is like my mental, you know, recreation, you, you know, you're responsible for your own. Um, I, I just picture Jesus sitting outside the synagogue after this whole thing played out, and he's, and he's sitting there, and he has his head in his hands. And the disciples come up, and they say, Master, are you right? Lord, are you all right? And he says, I'm just processing, guys. Just give me some space here. I need to process what just happened. I gave them the truth. I demonstrated in power, and they still say no. They still say no. Not just, not, not just rejection of the message, but rejection of the person. And that took Jesus some time to process. His humanity clearly on display. I think Jesus was genuinely stunned. You know, in Scripture, I find two things about Jesus, or two times about with regard to our Lord, this particular word is used, and they're both they both relate to the question of faith and people's response. The first one is recorded twice. Matthew and Luke both record record rather the Roman centurion, who came to Jesus and said, "My servant is dying; he's at the point of death." And Jesus said, "You know, I'll go with you." And you got to love the guy. He says, "Lord." My house isn't worthy for you to enter. I don't need for you to come into my house. All you have to do is say the word. I understand the dynamic here. I know what's going on. You say the word. My servant is healed. And Jesus went, whoa. He marveled. He was stunned. It took Jesus' time to process the faith of the Gentile. That exact same word is used here. When his own people, the people of Nazareth, rejected him, he went, whoa. It's going to take me a while to deal with this. Always been a question of faith. You know, I I think if if you were standing next to the Grand Canyon and, you know, just, whoa, taking it in, and Jesus walked up, you know, I don't, don't think he'd be overwhelmed by it. I think you might say, you like it? I made it. That is not the kind of thing that impressed our Lord. But people stepping out in faith when they had no reason to Or people rejecting faith when they had every reason to. That's what made an impression on him. His humanity in full display. So what do we get about that? Oh, one one last thing. It concludes that he was going around the villages teaching. Isn't that marvelous that even though he's been rejected willfully by an obstinate disbelief, that didn't stop him. He continued to go to nearby villages and preach. Didn't knock him off course. So what do we get from this? Well, I get three things. First, that Jesus was subject to rejection. He was subject to criticism. They saw and they heard. and had undeniable proof and still they rejected it. Even when Jesus expected a more positive response. And that helps me because I get rejected. Not only what I say and what I do, but even as a person. That's Rough, isn't it? That's what stands in the way for most of us sharing our faith is that fear of being rejected and not so much the message as the person. But it's so good to know that Jesus experienced the exact same thing. And it wasn't just like water off a duck's back. That would be one thing. If Jesus was rejected and he just rolled on like it was no big deal, that wouldn't help me much. But when I know but when Jesus was rejected, it stopped him in his tracks for a moment, and caused him to pause and recollect. I'm still processing this, guys. That helps me. That helps me. Gives me courage. The second thing is, and this is really great, is that rejection should never be regarded as final. You know, on the list of brothers that's there, brothers that rejected him are James and Jude, both of whom will reappear in the New Testament as leaders in the church. In time, they change. Boy, isn't that an encouragement. When we have those, especially those close to us, especially those we love, and we, we lay the plan of salvation before them in every possible way we can. You try the full court press. You try the subtle approach. You try Every way you can, this person to your heart is so inclined to, and they still hold you off. And it isn't long before you begin to understand and feel that it isn't the gospel they're rejecting, it's you. It's so good to know that doesn't have to be permanent. People change. And prayer does change things. That's an encouragement. And I think best of all, the third thing I would note is that Jesus had very, very real human experiences. He had very, very real human emotions. He marveled at great faith. He marveled at a lack of faith. His humanity was full and complete, and that is why we can trust in him. Father, I thank you so much that in your word, you include this event, Lord, which uh, at first glance, I mean, I, I don't really like seeing it fit into the, into the whole schedule, the whole scheme of things at first, but as like we look at it and we consider what about our Lord, it tells us. It gives us, Father, a really clear picture of his humanity. Not a God who is distant and cannot be touched, though be, although he be, is God. Lord, there's no question about that. But one that we can go to in our times of encouragement, in our times of discouragement, especially, Father, when we feel that sense of rejection. Not just of the message, but of who we are. Lord, we can look to you and know that our Savior can say to us, I've been there. And we can find hope and strength and encouragement. Help us, Father, make that the strength in which we walk each day, living out the work you're doing through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.